COVID-19. Weekly Digest. This is News Talk. Welcome to the Weekly Digest here on News Talk. I'm Stephen Murphy, and over the next hour, we'll take a look back at the week that was in the world of COVID 19. It's Friday night, and I'm here at the Department of Health in Dublin City Centre, where we've just been hearing from the Chief Medical Officer on where we stand in the fight against coronavirus. We'll hear from Dr. Tony Houlihan in just a minute, but let's start with an announcement that will probably come as a huge relief to parents. It's intended to open primary schools and secondary schools uh, at the end of August, at the normal time that the academic year begins uh, and uh, they're making good progress towards that, uh, particularly paying attention to new and emerging research about the level of risk attached to schools being open. Um, and as the research continues to come in, uh, we know that it's not a no-risk scenario, but it is a low-risk scenario to open schools. Taoiseach Leo Varadkar there. He also said that not every student might be able to go back to class for the full day, but the hope is that schools will be operating as close to normal as possible by the end of August. There was also news on childcare from the Children's Minister, Catherine Zappone, and there's been a bit of a change here. So the initial plan was that from the 29th of June, only essential workers could drop their children off at creches. That's now going to be extended to any parent who needs childcare in order to return to work. Providers have been asked to use play pods too which will limit the number of children interacting with each other. It'll be different from what they left in March but having their friends around them once again we believe will make it less strange and I think that parents will fear feel more comfortable placing their children in the care of practitioners and professionals that they know and have come to trust. All the stress that's been associated with the restrictions it's important that children are returning to contexts where they feel comfortable and that they know they can be happy. It was has also confirmed the public takeover of private hospitals won't continue beyond June. That's despite opposition from the HSE. The contract is costing the state €115 million Euro a month at the moment. Confirmation too, the wage subsidy scheme will be changed to include women on maternity leave. They've been excluded because of an anomaly. What's clear is the government is keen to push ahead with the easing of COVID-19 restrictions. Phase 2 is due to kick in on the 8th of June and would see more shops reopening larger numbers at funerals and the travel limit extended to 20 kilometres. Chief Medical Officer Dr Tony Houlihan is hopeful that can happen. At this moment in time there's nothing in relation to the overall progress of the disease that's giving us cause for concern but I'll say again it's it's too early for us to make the conclusion that for sure we will be in a position to lift those restrictions at the end of next week but there's no, no reason to believe at this moment in time that we won't be able to do that. One of the big debates this week was over social distancing. Should it be one metre? Junior Minister John Halligan certainly thinks so. This is incredible and I don't understand why we're not standing up to uh, Tony Houlihan and this. The WHO have said quite categorically on a number of uh, uh, occasions that one metre is sufficient, 1.5 metres. Why are we different but the chief medical officer is clear two metres is the way to go. There's ongoing research happening in the world in relation to the impact of all of these measures on the transmission of this infection. As new information becomes available to us from that evidence and that uh, research and from practice uh, in countries around the world, we'll, we'll apply that. If, if, and if that, if that takes us towards a change, then, then we'll make a change. We don't think we should be negotiating on, on, on a change in our advice. 
Let's take you back to Tuesday morning in the Dáil now because the issue of how outbreaks in nursing homes have been dealt with was the focus of the Oireachtas COVID-19 committee. First of all, thank you for the opportunity to address you today. Over 900 residents in those settings have died so far. Nursing Homes Ireland CEO Ty Daly was among those appearing and he was very critical of the level of state engagement with the sector early on in the pandemic. Key state organisations left the nursing home sector and its residents isolated in those early days. The dismay will live forever with us. We were exasperated at the early stages and we felt that the sector required a very specific plan. We knew that COVID-19 disproportionately impacts on older people. The Department of Health, though, clearly not in agreement. Here's Dr Kathleen McClellan. She's the chair of the National Public Health Emergency Team's Vulnerable People subgroup. I think it's very difficult to see how Nursing Homes Ireland can see themselves isolated from the state. There's clear and significant ongoing engagement with Nursing Homes Ireland. In what I would say has been a very problem-solving way, every time an issue has come up, we have worked with Nursing Homes Ireland to try and resolve that. And it's very clear that we've seen the HSE response here. We now have 23 COVID response teams that are up and running, providing multidisciplinary support to the nursing home sector. Significant numbers of staff have been provided to support the nursing home sector um, and also significant guidance has been provided and that will continue. Overall, health officials are confident that the efforts to suppress the virus are working so far. Professor Philip Nolan shares NEFIT's modelling advisory group. I think it's fair to say that Almost everything we're seeing is, from my perspective, astonishingly stable. The fact that we're seeing nothing in terms of an increase in disease, it remains early to be confident that that's telling us uh, that this is working, but it remains a very good sign. And while we're all being urged to keep following public health advice over the bank holiday weekend, the sunny weather will mean that for many, a socially distant trip to the Parker Beach is on the cards. Yeah, it's really nice to get out. Um, we came down nice and early so there wouldn't be lots of people around. You can hear the little one screaming mad there. <laughs> Just to get her out and about for about an hour. Yeah, we're having a great time. Yeah. Out keeping cool, aren't we? Yeah. And um, making sand tattoos. Now on Tuesday morning, Kieran Cuddy of Newstalk Breakfast spoke to Captain Jimmy Flannery of Dingle Sea Safari and Dingle Dolphin Tours about the impact the lockdown is having on the town. I mean, it's crazy here at the moment with this fine weather. You would expect the town to be booming, but uh, of course, in this troubled time, it's not. The town is completely decimated. It's it's uh, it's it's very eerie to 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 walk the town and to you know any time, day or night. It's uh, it's just crazy at this time. It really should be bustling, but it's not, of course. Yeah. And look, and I suppose look, everyone to a degree, almost everyone supported that the, the lockdown in the early days. We we all accepted it needed to be something needed to be done. But how concerned are you? about plans from here on out, uh, particularly uh, plans, I suppose, for this 14-day quarantine for anyone coming to the country. Essentially, what we're saying is no foreign visitors, please. We're closed. Yeah, I mean, we did the figures there. And, you know, I mean, over 50% of our business um, is is the, the foreign tourists um, from other, other countries. It's not the domestic. Um and even at that, you know, it, it, the, the domestic isn't going to isn't going to pay the bills because uh, I, I don't think the people are going to come the way that they. It's going to take a long time for for uh, people to you know have the confidence to come back again. So uh, you know, the outside tourists that's massive. The fourteen days, you may as well write it off. That's that's telling people uh, Ireland isn't open. Which uh, yes. You know, we totally understand if it's not safe, then we will totally, you know, accept it. And that's the way 
um, we'll have to. Mm. Uh, it's difficult watching other countries um, opening up, and we're not. Um, but, you know, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, so, yes, you want... Uh, Dingle needs to be bustling. It needs thousands of people. But it also needs to be safe, which is, the you know, the most important thing of the whole lot. But uh, yeah. we can't have conflicting uh, um, um, ideas. You know, if one country or a lot more countries say it's safe and then Ireland is saying, um, you know, it's not... Well, we have a problem. Yeah, look, you know, I, yeah, Jimmy, I think that's worrying. Yeah, I think you're right. I think once images start to maybe fill the rack of uh, beaches and hotels and restaurants being busy in other parts of Europe, tourist hotspots, the pressure might come on. And that was Captain Jimmy Flannery speaking to Kieran on Tuesday's News Talk Breakfast. Coming up next, Professor Luke O'Neill brings us up to speed with the latest news from the world of science. COVID nineteen weekly digest. On News Talk. You're very welcome back to Weekly Digest here on News Talk. I'm Stephen Murphy. Professor Luke O'Neill joined Pat Kenny on Thursday morning with the very latest in the battle of science versus COVID 19. And he started by discussing how flu, chickenpox, and STDs are down as a result of COVID 19. Yeah, this is striking stuff. Obviously, people in hospitals are measuring lots of things now during COVID-19, and they've got a good result in a way because the number of flu cases have dropped dramatically, which you might expect, of course, because people are socially distanced, you know, and they're they're in lockdown. So it's a really good example, I suppose, of lockdown working, you know, direct evidence. Normally, in, in, in a flu season path globally, as many as half a million people die, you see, because flu is still a, a big cause of death. That's dropped right down. And, and secondly, it normally tails off towards the end of May, flu cases, at the end of April, it began to go. So they're seeing this is a really a good sign that lockdown is working, I suppose. Now, the flu season in Hong Kong, uh, shorter, the number of cases in Hong Kong, uh, fewer. How does that compare with what happened when everyone had to lock down during SARS? Yeah, that's similar, precisely. They saw the same thing in a way, because again, it, because flu is transmitted through social contact, you'd expect that. The Hong Kong numbers are even better, about 63% decrease overall, if you look at the shortening of the season in Hong Kong, which is a huge number, obviously. So every country seems to be reporting this. There's a, there's a thing called FluNet, by the way, Pat, which they've used for a few years, where every hospital uploads its data on number of deaths from flu in cases. And you can look at that data now. And that's where this, this data is coming from. Just like with COVID-19, of course, that is a massive database as well, which every medic and, and scientist can look at. So the flu net data is really standing out. 150,000 uh, samples were taken in 71 countries as part of that. So in other words, as ever, we're looking for robust data, aren't we? And this is really robust. A, lot, a big decrease in flu, basically, is, is the current conclusion. Now, we mentioned chicken pox. Uh, what about those other typically childhood uh, conditions, measles and rubella? Yeah, again, it's striking. So, so again, in Hong, Hong Kong is one of the best places for this date at the moment. Chicken pox is down 75%, which is a big amount. Measles is down. Now, obviously, that's because the school's closed. Because, you know, that, that this is where these, these are childhood illnesses more than anything else. And have, not having kids in school means they aren't picking it up off each other. So, again, if it happened to be a school problem with COVID-19, that means that's worked. Because we don't think schools are a big issue. But still, those two diseases are down. And then as you said about STDs, which is a fascinating one, isn't it? They're trying to get data on that. It's a bit difficult to get data on STDs for all kinds of reasons. But the prediction is there's going to be a big drop there. Again, because less contact between people outside, you see. So be less, that's another disease that spreads, as we know, by social contact if you want to call it that uh, and again so STDs numbers are down as well so that's another one they've that's, uh, that's cropped up Now there's an extraordinary statistic that you've given me worldwide in April only 36 cases of rubella now yeah. again we're talking about schools being closed but all of these things need hosts to continue is it possible 
that if these lockdowns continued and schools remained closed, that you could get the elimination of rubella entirely. That's a really good point, Pat, precisely. Yes, especially look at chickenpox, 75% decrease. So that means that virus has nowhere to hide kind of anymore. And then rubella was a striking one, wasn't it? Yeah, there was a massive effect on that one. So now I think there'll still be pockets out there, of course. It's a bit like the COVID-19, the fear of the surge. You don't need too many cases for it to re-erupt. Like look at chickenpox, for instance, as soon as the kids go back to school, that'll start to spread even. And it's very infectious, chickenpox, Pat. Did you know the R value is nine for that? Whereas the R wow. value for COVID-19 is two. So so it's unlikely because these are so common. But you never know. It could continue for a while, basically. And there may be less cases as we, as we uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the coming months. Now, uh, we'll talk about uh, tracing apps in a moment, but we want to go to a country where they've done a pretty good job and they weren't as extreme as we were in terms of the lockdown. And that is Japan, what are the three C's by which they live? Yes, again, again, scientists uh, somewhat dispassionately, as you know, look, look at Sweden, say, or other countries and how they do it. Japan is now suddenly top of the class. They've kind of even taken South Korea in a kind of way because everything's gone so well there. And of course, people are like, why did Japan get there? We mentioned the masks yet again, Pat, universal wearing of masks, we think is part of this. But they had a very clear public health message very early on. The three C's is all you need to remember with this, this disease. You will catch this disease in closed spaces. That's the first C. Where there's crowds is the second C. And the third is where there's close contact. So those are the three C's. And if you have all three, you've got a big risk of picking up the infection. And they posters, they would information the whole time, avoid the three C's. They couldn't impose a lockdown, Pat, legally. The Japanese government, whatever way the legal system is there, they can't impose lockdowns. So they had this 3C campaign going and there was 80% decrease in contacts. The Japanese people behaved themselves, basically, you know, and that, that public health message was so strong there. So now, now every country, if we should all adopt the 3Cs as re- really as we go into this surge. So it's a very effective kind of public health campaign, decreased uh, the spread, including, as I say, things like masks and hygiene and everything else that we're doing. So I like that because it was such a, the poster, they've got every language, by the way, there's even an English one. Maybe we should get that poster in Ireland and stick it up everywhere. So it was a very effective messaging from the Japanese government. But the, the question is, how do they manage in their trains? You know the pictures we've seen, um, which happen at Russia, where they actually employ fellas to push you onto the train. They're so crowded like sardines. Um, yeah. Have they decrease the rate of infection or even the rate of crowding on those trains? Yeah. Well, as ever, Pat, with science, people dig into the data and go, this can't be true. And can we find evidence against it? Which is a good thing. That's the way science should be. It's supposed to be combative, actually. Uh, the trouble is the public are now seeing the combats between scientists and they don't like it. But scientists looked at this and they, the anomaly was it wasn't being spread on the uh, the commuter trains in Japan. And they said, like, but that, then your three C's can't be right because here's a closed environment with crowds and there's close contact. So the, the other side, look at it more closely. And first of all, people stopped going because they did stay home. So there's a lot less numbers on those, say, the subway in Tokyo and so on. Uh, but there was still a fair number of people. And then they realized most people in, in Japan don't speak on public transport. Isn't it strange? They're often silent places as people go to their their drudgery, their workplace. And secondly, they often travel on their own. They don't travel with a friend or others. So there was inclined to be a little bit of social distancing happening. And it was quite silent. Now, another risk factor, as we know, Pat, is speaking. That's for definite now. And the louder mm-hmm. you speak, the worse this virus spreads. So they think that might be one reason why there weren't, there weren't clusters, basically, on the underground system. It's there were less people anyway, and, and the Japanese apparently are very quiet when they travel on commuter trains. But it's still an anomaly, and it does disagree with some of the stuff. But all the other evidence combined absolutely supports the three Cs. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, what do you make of the current debate whether our degree of separation should be two metres or one metre? Um, I can tell you that the CDC recommendation is at least six feet, which is yep. about two metres for the Americans. They still deal in feet. But you hear people saying that the WHO are saying one metre is right, which yep. is I feel so. I feel sorry for the businesses, Pag. If you're a business and you go, what the hell is this happening, dithering in one country saying one other two? If I had one metre rule, my business would do better. So I feel a bit sorry for those guys. It, the data is, is, is clear in a sense. The closer you are, the increase the risk is. It's obvious, you know. And if you're two metres away, you have a much lower risk of catching it than if you're one metre away. And the question is, how much risk do you want to bear? And remember, Pat, it's not just the distancing, it's other things as well. If you have several things in place, you could probably get away with one metre, you see, because overall the risk goes. You see, the analogy I always use, Pat, is a bit like Swedish, Sweden again, to the forefront. You know, they've got seatbelts and airbags. Uh, and if you have both, you decrease risk of debt even more than having one, you see. So, so it's, it's a complicated thing, risk, isn't it? But I, I do think for businesses, there needs to be a clear directive on this one. And I can't see the harm. And definitely one metre outdoors, obviously, because the wind is blowing, right? Um, if you're indoors and you have massive ventilation, that makes one metre less risky. So, so it's a complicated one. It's, uh, the trouble is this that it becomes a single item, doesn't it? And I understand why people want to go to one metre. But there would be ways to get to one metre indoors, basically, if you adopt other as well. Now, uh, there's a, a paper I've been reading over the last uh, while, and it's uh, authored by a data scientist at the University of San Francisco who teaches online courses in uh, machine learning. But uh, they're, they're looking at the statistics that are publicly available and the micro droplets that might give you COVID. Um, if a person is wearing a mask, they fall away and uh, you can't get an infection if you're more than 1.5 metres away from the person wearing the mask, but five metres for someone not wearing a mask. Yeah, yeah, so, that, that, that's right. That, that's why masks are so important. But when, that's the tricky bit. You, you see, if, the, if you really were zealous, you'd go, let's go to five metres, <laughs> because this little droplet aerosol blows on the breeze. And they found aerosols many metres away from the source, and someone could potentially pick it up. So again, it's all about risk, isn't it, you see? And it's, it's less likely if you're five metres away, there's still a chance of picking something up five metres away if it's an aerosol. That's why it's so important to re-emphasize mass, because flu is a bit different. Flu is big, bigger droplets that fall near the person. But if it's an aerosol, it can just waft away in a room and spread even five metres. So, again, that would justify wearing of masks where there's crowds, you see. So, so again, again, it's all about the, the idea of risk and then combining different things together to get an overall risk rate. Now, there's a, another proposition in that very paper suggesting that uh, the business of randomised testing, which is the normal way that scientists uh, will affirm that something is effective or is not going to be effective, that with something like COVID, uh, you, you know, you can't deliberately infect people with things. So maybe you have to throw that kind of process out the window for some of the things. If there's a therapeutic good, for example, you don't stick around and find out if it works. If it's been observed yeah. to work, even without randomised trials, well, use it for heaven's sake. That's a really important point, Pat, and that applies to masks as well, because the mask detractors are going, give us a double-blind placebo-controlled trial, give a 1,000 people masks and a 1,000 people not, and let's see what happens. You can't do that at the moment, because it's very hard to do in the first place. If there's a pandemic, you're ethically not allowed to do that kind of thing, because you might put people at risk, you see. So so what you do instead is you get the circumstantial evidence and get the best evidence that you can. So so that's right. I mean, and what's happening often is things are running in parallel, so you know different approaches are being taken at the same time and coming to some kind of conclusion. But it's a good point, the sampling issue, really. 
Now, Luke, the question of some sort of apps for your smartphone, not everyone has a smartphone, but like everything else, if you get good compliance on social distancing and washing the hands on the wearing of masks, even if it's all voluntary, you do get a beneficial effect. So what about apps? How many of us need to use an app for the thing to give us any kind of useful information about clusters? Yeah, this seemed to be the answer, didn't it, Pat, early on? Again, it's a bit like antibody testing, where we all thought, oh, we have an antibody kit, uh, we'll crack this, and then the kits come out and they don't really work, and there's a couple of you know, problems. Apps have become a bit like that, because it does seem obvious, doesn't it, that you load, download an app on your phone, uh, and it'll tell where you are, and then tell you if you're near someone who's reported as being infected, and then you go and report yourself. So, so it seems like an ideal thing. And there is you know, evidence that this happens, and several countries have brought in apps. The government have said, you know, download this app. So Australia has one called COVID Safe. For instance, two million of the Australians have that on their phones now. Uh, Singapore have an app called Trace Together. Again, huge compliance. 1.4 million Singapore people have had that app on their phone. And and the study showing that if, if there's a, a, even if there's 60% compliance with this, that will have a big effect on the OR value. And in fact, they're claiming the OR goes below one if 60% have an app on their phone. So so lots of people feel apps are part of the uh, part, another strategy. As you say, it joins all the other thing, another weapon, I guess, to use against the virus. Now, um, schools. On Monday, you told us that uh, schools, there should be some opening of schools, that you've got to weigh up the damage educationally that's done, particularly to those who should be, you know, starting school or uh, the early learning years. And perhaps for those who are leaving primary school and scheduled to go on to to second year, have you thought any more about um, what we should do about schools? Yeah, I mean, again, Pat, the evidence is, is even more compelling that children are not a major problem here. Unlike flu, by the way, it just it, it, the school closure is justified if it's a disease like flu because children picked it up among each other and then they go and spread it at home. And that, that, that's why you close schools in the flu pandemic. This is a different virus with different properties. And, and the more it's gone on, the more we've realized this. And now there's really more and more compelling evidence that kids aren't a big source of spread. So, for example, in households, very few cases came from a child. Now, the only issue with this is these studies were done sometimes after schools had closed, but they've taken this into account to some extent. So, so if lots of kids go back to school, uh, they, they're unlikely to be bringing it back home, basically. And secondly, you know, they pick up the infection and they get very mild symptoms and they may not even spread it anyway, you know. So now, again, what, what other countries are doing, but you know, the way you have to follow what the other countries do. Many countries have said reopen schools uh, below a certain age. The, the trouble is the schools have, you still have to observe social distancing and hygiene just to be on the safe side, because there's still a tiny risk of a, of a causing a problem. Um, and some schools can't do that, I suppose, for whatever reason, or at least they, they have trouble setting that up. But you see, you need to have those measures in place. It can't be back to normal, basically. But I can't see why a child can't go in for two days a week, can you? I mean, it's, it's beyond me. And then you have less half the kids in the school. That'll be a big decrease in risk, even if there was one, you know? And I think for the mental health of the children, it's extremely important. And lots of studies have shown this in the past, that children kept outside of school will suffer academically later. And then the biggest reason of all, Pat, as we discussed, is the vulnerable children who can't get homeschooling. Yeah. They benefit massively from being in school. That's enough of a reason for me, especially given the, the scientific. There's no scientific evidence now to say that we, re we shouldn't reopen schools cautiously is the way to put it cautiously now yep. um, some of the questions coming in uh, please ask Luke how a 17 year old would get shingles the doc diagnosed him with shingles yesterday he's had chicken pox in the past yeah that's a good that's a good question it just varies in the population all these things 
we have what's called the normal distribution. You know, the average age for shingles is much older, which is in the middle of the curve, if you like. But some younger people get shingles and some older people. So it's just a spread. It's variation in the population that will give rise to that kind of thing. But you have to have had chickenpox to get oh, you do. Uh, shingles yeah. Yeah. anyway. Yeah, yeah that's um, a good Vitamin question. D... We did work, I did work on chickenpox a few years ago, actually, myself. So there's a latency there. So you get the chickenpox and then you have to wait a certain number of years before it re-erupts as shingles. In that particular case, they might have re-erupted after two or three years instead of 20, that kind of thing. And, and there's just a spread of, of when it re-erupts, basically. OK, vitamin D, is it recommended for our 13-year-old as well as ourselves? Well, again, as you know, my, some of my colleagues in Trinity produced a nice correlation study there with vitamin D. You need vitamin D for your immune system for definite. Uh, and it's actually slightly anti-inflammatory as well, interestingly. So it's very interesting as a, as a vitamin, vitamin D. The big debate now is do you get enough in your normal diet? So if you just have fish or you know, natural sources of vitamin D or, quite a, or even the milk that's fortified, is that sufficient or should we now be taking supplements? I don't think we should take supplements for the moment, that some of the studies will head in that direction maybe. So I just think a, a good balanced diet will suffice. And then the all important sunshine. Can you believe the weather this morning, Pat, by the way? <laughs> Coming in, it was like a tropic, <laughs> tropical. I can't get over it. What? This is a, maybe, it's like the even start thing. We keep mentioning it and that changes the weather, does it? But, um, but isn't it wonderful? So vitamin D is great sunshine on your skin. Fantastic. So I wouldn't necessarily recommend getting extra supplements of vitamin mm. D. Uh, Joe remarks, doing a very physical job and wearing a mask simultaneously is not uh, easy. Now, it can be done. We know builders do um, jobs usually and they have to wear masks to prevent, you know, cement dust and so on when they're doing certain jobs. So they do manage to do tough work while wearing uh, masks. Could yep. you ask, Luke, if fewer cases of cold and flu circulating will weaken our immune systems and could this leave us more exposed in a second or third wave uh, of coronavirus? That's a great question as well. I don't think so. We're picking up other infections all the time anyway. And we don't even know we have living in the world means you're living in dirt. Let's put it that way, you know. So so you're always taking in germs here and there and they're giving your immune system little little boosts, I guess, as we go along. So I wouldn't worry too much about that. Uh, any uh, thought that the COVID-19 will go away in the next few months, just like previous coronaviruses like SARS and MERS? Any evidence for that? Well, the numbers are going down. But I see this is the, the good news, of course. As we know, in Ireland, we had our first... Uh, day without deaths being reported and we're joining that club now by the way there's a list of countries now where there's been a day when there's zero deaths so so everything's heading in the right direction which is great the viral count is plummeting all over the world and it will get lower and lower if we just keep observing these things it will come back a bit let's get ready for that because as soon as we're out and about and, and it will start to spread we'll see blips here and there in fact one negative this morning by the south korea have reported a blip have you seen that and they're going to now have a slightly, you know, restraining things again. So not, not a full lockdown, but you'll see measures coming in. That may happen to us, but it will be a process in the coming months. And, and then eventually it will go down, hopefully, to the levels, as, as, the, as the questioner said, like, around, like normal coronavirus. A suggestion from Donal in Cork. I think a key point in terms of risk is having to increase the volume of your speech when you're communicating in a public space. So should background music and TVs be banned in bars and cafes when they reopen? Uh, the idea being that, for example, Luke, when the, when the metabolics are playing in the docky duck <laughs> and we all have to shout... <laughs> to be heard. That, that could have been a super then? spreading event. That was a super spreading event potentially there because of all the shouting. It's a really good point, actually, because it's a surprise this fact in a way that shouting is so important for this one, isn't it? Again, nobody, this just shows you a brand new virus. 
We don't know much about it. Lo and behold, shouting is a way it gets transmitted. So starting the choirs tell us this. The, the data behind this is really compelling. And you've, you've probably seen the video of the guy with the mask on when he shouts and lots of stuff comes out without the mask, you know. So yeah. so we've no doubt shouting is a fact. That's a really interesting. I think from that one, Pat, if, if pubs could be creative in all kinds of ways, they could reopen. I mean, certainly if they're outdoors, that's a really good thing. Remember, if you're outdoors, Pat, you have 19 decreased risk if you're just simply by going outside your house. Isn't that amazing? So, so again, any any outdoor activity is good. And maybe pubs could make sure there isn't too much background noise. You never know. And then as that questioner asked, people wouldn't shout as much. Now, a final point. Uh, yesterday, you were quoted by none other than the, the boss of Ryanair, Michael O'Leary. Have a listen. But you'd, you'd have as many people on the flight. There isn't going to be this empty aisle up the middle of the plane, is there? No. And again, the science and the medical experts of the ECDC have signed off on that. As long as you're wearing face masks. Remember on board an aircraft, we have hospital level filters, HEPA filters that recycle the air every or refresh the air every two or three minutes. Everybody's wearing face masks. And there are significant barriers in that you know, even if you sneeze or cough on board an aircraft, the seat in front of you is the blockage. But with everybody wearing face masks, cabin crew and our passengers, uh, as Professor Luke O'Neill has indicated, it eliminates almost all, not all, but almost all of the risk of communication of viruses generally. So... Flights for life, Pat. That's what I want now. Flights on Ryanair if, if Ryanair ever gets going again. <laughs> well, Michael, thank you very much. Yeah, that's, and that's that's true. I, what he said there is correct. You know, I I, I tell you, I, my my opinion on flights at the moment, Pat, is it's a tricky one because people won't want to go on flights, will they? That's the first problem. No matter how much you reassure them, I suspect. I think the answer with flights, Pat, is you test outside the airport. So D- Dubai are claiming a ten-minute test. I don't know if you saw that at the airport. You can test someone. It's a blood sample, and it's done in 10 minutes. Now, if, if only people who are not infected are let into the airport, a lot of these problems go away. And then they get on airplanes. That's if you've got to trust the test. I'm not sure that Dubai test yeah. is fully accurate, but uh, that seems to me to be. Now, you, he's right. I mean, those HEPA filters are very powerful and they are taking out virus. So so there shouldn't be stuff in the air and masks would help for definite, I think. But uh, but it's a tricky one. It's, I think it's more to do with the consumer reluctance as much as anything else. Yeah, I mean, you might be sitting close to someone who's, um, you know, very careful wearing a mask or you might be sitting beside someone who's belching his way through the flight and you're yeah, yeah. You know, you're terrified well, that's he, Michael is right I mean it's the length of time the two key variables Pat, that we keep banging on about are proximity and time aren't they uh, but the Japanese will be saying an aeroplane is a closed place with crowds for this close contact they're the three highest risk factors you know so so therefore you've got to try to mitigate against those somehow on a plane and that was Professor Luke O'Neill of Trinity College in Dublin speaking with Pat Kenny on Thursday morning. Coming up next, we'll hear from businesses about social distancing. COVID-19 Weekly Digest on News Talk. Welcome back to Weekly Digest on News Talk. I'm Stephen Murphy. Now, earlier this week, there was discussion about reducing the two metre social distance. Henry McKean went out to find out what business owners and customers feel about this idea, which Dr. Tony Houlihan has since confirmed we will not deviate from for now. Ivan, I've been out and about, and even in the good times, Ivan, I wouldn't stand too close to you. Like, who would? Uh, I've been out and about on the streets meeting uh, restaurant owners, pub owners, uh, lots of different people. And remember, um, these rules, you talk about the two metre rule, when these restaurants reopen on the 29th of June, how will they do it? And some pubs, the ones that don't serve food, they can't reopen until the 10th of August. The World Health Organization have said the two metre guidelines keep you safe 99% of the time. 
but you can um, always greatly reduce your risk by maintaining a one meter distance. And remember, 70% of droplets from a person's cough will travel within one meter and very few will travel further. I got to meet Pauline Fay. She's the owner of Fay's in John Conrath in County Meath. We closed on the 15th of March when the regulations, when it, when it was when we were asked. Are you doing a, an off-licence delivery service? No, no, because we were led to believe that it was not right, to, but you couldn't do it, you couldn't do it. But now they're saying it's okay? They're saying it's okay, but after two months of free coolers and everything being turned off, I don't think my customers would appreciate beer that maybe is just going to... An old warm beer. So for you, could you work your pub, could you serve food at two metres or does it have to realistically be one metre? It's going to be impossible for, for I think, I don't, own, I don't own a restaurant, but I think it's going to be impossible for any, any place to work with two metres. If it's good for one, it's good for the other. All pubs should be allowed to open up at the one time, including rest with restaurants. It's, it's two-tier society. Will you reopen ever? Oh yeah, I will. I will, but the guidelines, the guidelines will have to be come into reality. It's a, it's a, it is a large enough pub. Has to be, has to be one metre. You cannot heat, heat a pub and look for air coming through it at the one time. It's going, go, coming into the months, the winter months. And how is your health? How are you feeling about it all? I'm grand. I don't know, I don't know where you have to go to get this coronavirus or wherever. But I, there's nobody in the area. Just, and your mental health? There's only so much painting you can do. Fed up, really fed up. All right, that was Pauline Fay there, a publican from Meath, who's obviously closed at this time. So did you meet other small businesses, retail operators? I did. Remember, a lot of them were allowed to reopen last Monday. I met a light shop owner and a small local shoe repair business in Swords, a large North County Dublin town. And I asked, what would a reduction to just one metre mean for their business? I'd leave it at the two metres for the time being because it's unknown. This pandemic. Dermot Gochran, you've been here on Swords Main Street since 1996. There's a screen between us. All that I can see is you and a sign saying shoplifters will be prosecuted. I won't steal anything. And we are two minutes apart. If we were a metre, would it be better for business? What do you think? Probably be better for business, but health-wise, I'd be more worried about than, than anything else. Health is your health, you know. Don't mind the business. And how is your health? Uh, well, fine, fine. Not, not bad. And it must have felt great to reopen last week. Oh, God, it was like a bit of fresh air, yes, definitely. Just to meet real people and back talking again to people. You know, it's unbelievable. It's like coming out of a deep sleep for so long and being able to, you know, meet people. And will you be okay financially? No, but how whenever, so what? Uh, <laughs> everybody's taking a hit, but look, we lived to tell the tale, didn't we? I'm Kevin Mooney from Illumination and Swords, and yes, I think a metre distancing would be better for business all around. You're kept busy, you're kept ticking over, you have a whole queue system in place, you've got tape up, you've got arrows, and the customers, they're obeying, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, generally most customers, 95 or 96% of customers will keep it in the distancing. Um, I think people sometimes forget, but the markings on the shop floor help remind people. Brilliant to open the doors again last week, being very busy. It has been busy? Excellent, yeah, really, really busy. And does it make up for all that lost trade, though? No.
You'll never get that back. No, no, definitely not. And I know this is personal and I know it's business. Will you survive? We will, yeah, we will. We got through a recession, so yeah, we will. Definitely a metre, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it will be good for business. All right, do let us know your views in relation to your experience uh, uh, as a, a punter, as a customer. Uh, one texter's already, you'll be lucky to be one metre from people in the supermarkets. People are really good when queuing, and that's true on the outside uh, footpath anyway, but not when you're in the store. It can be like supermarket sweep sometimes. Um, uh, so, essentially, uh, uh Business would welcome it. Uh, I think it, it's it's really where there's a sit-down situation mm. rather than people queuing and going around in a store. Um, you've spoken to staff uh, as did, well. I did, and, and you're right. I mean, restaurants, uh, they, they're desperate for it because they can't really operate with the two metres apart. They just they just can't do it. Uh, but lots of people would agree with that uh, that listener uh, that texted in the programme. Supermarkets, they're like a war zone. I, I was in a supermarket just yesterday, and it's very tough to avoid people. It's almost impossible. It, it, it really is quite difficult. I met this supermarket worker, and she works for a large chain of supermarkets, which we won't name, and you can hear background traffic because people are back and they are out and about. Oh, well, I think it's very difficult to, to try and keep two metres apart, you know, especially in supermarket aisles. Sometimes it's just impossible. You have to get by people, you know, to do your job. And, and you are frontline. You are yeah. up there in the supermarket and new figures show that COVID in supermarkets amongst staff is actually the national average. It's 0. 0.5. Do you feel safe in the supermarket? Yes and no. It's a risk that you take and you just hope that, you know, you won't get sick. If you do, you hope that it's not going to be a bad dose and that you that you won't need to hospitalised. So in reality, you're not two metres apart. How could you be working in a supermarket? Exactly. You, it's really, it's very difficult to stay two, two metres apart, you know, and we are, we're together every day, all day. So it's kind of like your family, you know, might as well be living with each other but for the customer's point of view you can see some of them are quite standoffish you know they don't like you coming too close elderly customers like i'm two meters away from you at the moment yeah. you're having your break outside is that yeah. to try and keep away from workers no that's just because it's nice <laughs> and sunny <laughs> um, I, I, I suppose the the big innovation has been at the till to have these plastic screens they mm. seem to have worked yes. pretty well henry they have, and I know we mentioned figures there, the supermarkets. They've done a really good job, and the staff haven't got sick, and the customers haven't got sick because the place is absolutely spotless, because they're working all hours to keep it clean. And if the supermarkets can make it work, so can the restaurants, uh, so can the cafes, so uh, can uh, the pubs. Uh, and even the building sites, obviously, they opened last week. But perhaps the building sites, they're an example where the builders are very close together because they've got to lift heavy things and, and work in a kind of buddy system. I got to meet builders and a mobile hairdresser, and she promises me she doesn't offer backstreet haircuts. Natasha O'Reilly, a mobile hairdresser. So, Natasha, you're a mobile hairdresser, so you go from door to door. You could come to my household and cut my sideburns that are all over the place but you can't can you no i can't not till the 20th of july at least yeah and you're not a backstreet barber no no definitely not you must be tempted no no it's big not money to be made <laughs> no yes but no it's not worth it at the moment and what do you think about one meter 
to two meters. I Should it be reduced? I definitely don't think at the moment anyway. Maybe see how it goes over the next couple of weeks and maybe reduce it down to the one meter. But at the moment, no. You're in construction. Is it really possible to remain two meters apart? You know, because sometimes you operate a buddy system. There's some certain crews, no, they can't. You're all in the same area, sure. And there could be up to 40 people, 50 people in the same area. So, no, it's unrealistic, really. I think we should be getting back together, you know, and trying to build up our immune system. It's nearly gone now in the hospitals and everything else. So while it's relatively gone, we should be trying to get that herd immunity back up. I think two metres is about right. Well, I work in a residential house, so I still have to continue on with work the way it has been even before all of this happened. So being a care worker, you're right on top of the, the patient, aren't you? You, yeah. you can't we stay can't, a metre, no. two metres. Uh, no, they, they have tried to put in place, you know, try and keep it as, as much as possible, but it's hard, especially in the disability area. You can't really keep social distancing all the time. All right, a variety of views and a variety of uh, businesses. Uh, Henry, any opinion yourself? Well, I do think if the pubs and restaurants do reopen, it will mean more wages. uh, And that uh, basically means more tax being paid, less people on the dole. Uh, And there is conflicting advice. Who say at least one metre apart, ideally two metres? The European Centre for Disease Prevention Control say one metre apart. And here in Ireland, the National Public Health Emergency Team, they've settled on two metres. But it's going to change in the next few days or few weeks. We're going to see it drop to one metre. I think the public just need to have some cop on. And let's say you are in a supermarket or when the restaurants do reopen, tell the person, I'm going to go that way. I'm going to go straight. Could you please move out of my way? That report from Henry McKean. As always, we'll continue to bring you updates as they happen on News Talk. We'll be sure to subscribe to this podcast on the Go Loud app or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also submit your questions or comments. We'd love to hear them. You can send them to COVID questions at newstalk.com. Until next week, thanks for listening and do take care.